Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, many thanks to everybody that follows me, interacts with me on social media. Twitter's kind of taken off for me now, 11,500 followers. I'm incredibly humbled to have that support and that interaction. You know, we talk about having courageous conversations and we talk about wanting to make a difference and equally exploring the work of men and women in law enforcement because um, good stories of policing don't often make the front pages of our 
tabloid media it's sadly only the bad story so um it's uh it's a a fantastic experience to be involved with sharing some of those stories but tonight um in the past couple of weeks i've really been trying to better understand myself and 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 challenge my own opinions and insights into serious and violent crime particularly here in london with knife crime i've been probably quite um no, overtly critical of some of the strategies I think undertaken by the London mayor and, and people have commentated that and, and, and there's been some back and forth. And one of the the many people that I've I've had engagements with, and I'm, and, and I'm so chuffed that he's on the podcast tonight, is Graham Goulden from up in Scotland. Graham, welcome to the Protect and Serve podcast. Firstly, welcome to the show and how are you? Fantastic. It's, it's, really, it's really good to be here, Ollie. We've had a few little interactions on on social media, which has been really, really positive. And first of all, thank you for doing what you're doing because... I think what you're doing is creating much needed conversations which are sparking curiosity um, amongst not only law enforcement, policing, but I think other people as well. So thank you for that. No, it's it's an absolute pleasure. And as I said off air, you know, I had a fantastically positive engagement with some young young men that I met um, a number of months ago who agreed to sit down with me and tell me about some of the challenges and some of the anxieties and fears they have around this whole topic of knife crime. But before we get into the the granular detail of all that. Let's just first of all better understand your background. So, if I'm right, nearly thirty years in policing uh, in Police Scotland. Tell us about sort of the the decision way back in the late '80s to join policing. What was the catalyst for you? I think you know. I think one thing I've done a lot in the last few years is ask police officers why did you join the policing, and I and I, I asked myself that question recently. And again, just to help people, I think there's this there's this common goal I think within policing to help. Um, individuals. I remember my mum years ago saying, you've always wanted to join the police, Graham. You always wanted to. So, you know, I think from a young age, you know, my sort of early teens right through, um, you know, leaving school and then doing some doing some stuff at college, but then getting the opportunity to join the police in Edinburgh in 1987. I was 19 years old. I was a boy. I was wow. a young, naive, um, immature boy. But did I grow up in those first two or three years experiencing things like the Lockerbie disaster and other and other experiences, which really shaped me. But yeah, I think it was about helping people, helping communities um, and, you know, just helping people in general. I, I often talk about, you know, I think all of my audience and viewers understand now the complexities of going through the whole training system. You know, there's this component of theoretical understanding of legislation, policy and procedure. And then there's this practical element, you know, in terms of sort of the operational safety component. But one of the, the key skills that I often think which can't be taught to you is the ability um, to compartmentalize as best as you possibly can often exposure to trauma and that could be going to your first sudden death or going to your first major incident it could be a you know a homicide or a road traffic trauma as you say you joined as a very young 19 year old and i think that that the generally the training process matures you to a point and then the real work starts for you being exposed in the early years to that sort of trauma and, and the challenges which you had never been exposed to before how did you handle that you know, as I said, just briefly there, you know, 19, I joined in 1987 and in 1988 was the Lockerbie, Pan Am won the Pan Am, the Pan Am bombing over Lockerbie. And I remember going down there the day after it happened. So there's there's what but one traumatic event that, that I've experienced and there's, there's been shadows of other events as well. But let's start with that. You know, that day really, really is etched in my mind. You know, I, every every year on that day, I, I go away somewhere quiet and just reflect on some of the things I experienced and saw. But it was the, it was the friendships, you know. It was the relationships that I had with my with my team, with people around me, my supervisors, the leaders, 
Um, my tutor, my, you know, my, you know, my tutor cop died about two months ago. Les, you know, old man, he died an old man, which is really good to hear. But I think it was people like Les, who and other officers who just really looked after me, and that, that's that's something I think we need to get into policing a bit more. Look after each other. You know, you highlight that that, that issue of the number of traumatic um, traumatic incidents. I know in the U.S., for example, I, I work with police in the U.S. and um, more cops die with their own gun, you know, with a suicide related than on duty. And it's that exposure to primary and secondary trauma. And I think now more than ever, we need to instill in police officers, look out for each other. If I'm not looking out for you, who's looking out for me? So for me, it was the relationships that my my sergeants and supervisors built, around, you know, built just, it just gave you that, that support that we all need in our lives. So for me, just having someone to speak to, um, and then as I've grown older, just you know, reaching out to friends, family, if I'm struggling with any things I need to talk about, and having the most wonderful wife in the world who spots things just and says, hey, you doing? So I think it's having people around you is really important. And having the courage to talk about stuff as well, I think is important. We've often said it's okay not to be okay. Um, and, and, and that's always a, a key saying because, you know, we often policing is seen as this vocation where naturally yeah. people just assume the resilience is already there embedding us. But actually, you know, and some people handle it differently to others, whereas, you know, um, others, it takes a while to understand how you can manage that. But talking about that first big major incident, you know, it, the, the Pan Am tragedy many, many years ago mm -hmm. is not one that we've spoken about or reflected on to any great detail. For, for the viewers that are outside the UK that may not be familiar with it, can you just talk us through that, those sort of events and how you were involved? Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the Lockerbie, it's called the Lockerbie disaster, but it was a murder on a, on a, on a massive scale. Over 270-odd people crew and passengers died over the over the over the town of Lockerbie in Scotland and um and you know in the la in the last few years we've had we've had a conviction of you know for a bomber but there's been so much you know um, discrepancy so much lack of clarity around what happened and I think there's much to be um discovered around that whole case but my involvement was you know I remember my mum woke me up in the early hours of I think it was a Thursday morning our our shift had planned our Christmas night out on that Thursday, um, but three o'clock in the morning, mom comes through, that's work on the phone for you. Um, and I, I went to the phone, sleepy, because <laughs> that's what you are at three o'clock in the morning, get yourself to the headquarters, you're going to Lockerbie. And I, to be honest with you, and I've said this a few times, I had no idea where Lockerbie was, no idea. And I lived probably about wow. 50 miles from it. Um, but we went down on the bus um, with about you know, 30, 40 other officers, a whole convoy of buses went down, because it was obviously mutual aid, all hands to the pump. Policing does that really well, doesn't it, Ollie? It really comes together around things. And um, yeah, I remember vivid memories walking down the, the main street in Lockerbie and just seeing bits of fuselage. And like, it's funny because every time I, I you know, turf, you know, lay turf or I, I dig turf up, I always go back to that day because I remember the, the fuselage just cutting the turf like it was paper. And you can, I can wow. still see that, I can still see that. I remember going into the, there was a briefing by the chief constable at the time and you just knew this is big, this is massive. Um, and after the briefing, I remember many people will have, have seen the big um, crater, which, which um, you know, that was the, I think the wing landed and part of the fuselage landed in Sherwood Crescent, which just wiped out some houses. And um, our, our duty that day was just to really 
um, protect the scene, protect the locust, protect the scene. But hey, I always, I, I, I always remember the positives that day. I'm, one thing I've trained myself to be in the last few years is be positive about stuff. When I saw the humanity that day from the from the residents who were in a state of shock. You know, every time I buy a Mars bar, I think of Lockerbie because we we had an endless supply of chocolate and Mars bars in particular. Um, but it's funny how these little things come back to you. But I remember the the humanity that I saw the coming together. And if you if you watch some of the programs about about Lockerbie, that shines out the 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 goodness. Maybe we'll talk about that tonight with violence. The goodness that exists in our communities and and for me, anyone involved in prevention work look at the strengths in your community rather than just looking at the negatives and the harms you know if we all we're doing is focusing on negative things then we run the risk of continuing issues whereas start to look at the positives and i i looked at the positives and i always reflect on the positives and every time i watch programs about lockerbie that does shine through the good people of lockerbie who went through a horrific event lost people on the ground friends relatives neighbors um and um yeah, so that was a day. I remember going back, you know, the, going down, the bus was really lively. Going home, it was dead quiet. Dead mm. quiet. We'd had like an 18-hour day that day. Uh, I was fortunate. I didn't have to go back down, but I know colleagues, I mean, who were down there again doing like mortuary details. And you can just imagine the trauma that, that they went through and the, ex the experiences they had. So I got off lightly. But yeah, it still has a lasting impact to me. Yeah. And, and what's, you know... Back in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, during the early parts of your career, before you started to progress through the leadership ranks yourself, what was the culture like? Because culture is something that's been talked about so much in the last couple of years, particularly across policing in terms of how colleagues interact with us, the, you know, um, the accepted banter, uh, yeah. which pushes the boundaries. What was that like for you in terms of your, your exposure how did you know was there a, yeah. was there a sense of people police themselves in terms of sort of what they could say and, and kind of get away with i think as a young a young a young officer i remember just you know hearing hearing behaviors that probably i wasn't comfortable with joining in with behaviors that i wasn't comfortable with joining in but that's what you do to fit in it's a human nature to that desire to fit in because what's the alternative if you don't don't fit in um, speaking up was hard. You know, I, you know, I, I do a lot of culture change work just now with policing in, in the UK and in the US. And I talk about that sense of loyalty that exists in policing. And loyalty can be wrong. It can be blind, misplaced. Um, and I remember a friend of mine who was a victim of bullying and I knew he was being bullied in policing. And I did nothing about it. I was like 20 at the time and I knew what was going on. And I remember just turning a blind eye to it. Not, not even saying, not even speaking to him. And to this day, I still feel really bad about about not, and a lot of work I do now is about helping people speak up, helping officers speak up, really looking at that word loyalty. You know, one thing we need to do in policing um, now is to redefine what it means to be loyal. Because loyalty, when it's blind, when it's misplaced, can lead to you turning a blind eye. You know, the number of mm. officers that have lost their job in the last two years, some cops need to go. We'd all agree that some officers need to lose their jobs for their behavior. But how many of these officers could have been stopped long before? They got to that line that was crossed when misconduct kicks in. And um, for me, you know, that loyalty gets in the way. I, I try and teach critical loyalty now. Critical loyalty is what I have the moral courage to tell you, mate, what you need to hear, know what you want to hear. You know, and I think if we if we create a culture of that within policing, and we're doing it with, I'm working with three forces just now, if we, we create that culture where, you know, speaking to you and pointing out something you've done is harmful is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. You know, I think, you know, 
that, that idea of helping people, we need to extend that to helping our colleagues, not just around behaviours, but around mental health as well. You know, my work with West Yorkshire Police recently highlighted um, that police officers struggle to ask the questions when they spot red flags and mental health issues, for example. You know, I think policing focuses too much on the end result, the suicide prevention. That's important. Totally think that's important. But for me, it's the bits before that. It's that how do you, you know, how do you speak to a colleague who might be exhibiting some red flags, but you're just not sure. You know, the aviation industry did similar training, you know, in the 1980s. They they introduced like it's called peer intervention training. And that's what I do with policing in the US and policing here. And in aviation introduced a model of escalation. So don't go diving in there and say, hey, Ollie, you're 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 looking crap today. I think something's wrong. I could start with a little probe. Hey, you okay? Mm. Nice. So we give officers tools to have these in question, have have you know, ask these types of questions. So, and I think, you know, culture is you know, police police leaders, senior leaders really need to invest in culture, really need to do more than just the the buzzwords, the the sayings, the you know, the online trainings, which God almighty, that we just know the evidence says online training around culture just doesn't work. And what are we doing? We're doing online training. And I understand the, the, the logistics of it all, but if you really want to invest in a culture, you need to put the time into it. And I'm working with Humberside, City of London and West Yorkshire just now, and this is discussive face-to-face training that we're, that we're, that we're doing um, with, with, with officers, and it's landing really, really well. So back back in the nineties, the culture was there—the culture of just standing up for your mates, turning a blind eye to things. Don't get me wrong; some really great officers doing a great work out there, and I think that's important that we need to highlight that. But I think culture has been an issue for policing for many, many years, and that idea of family policing family can sometimes get in the way of officers doing the right thing. You know, f- family is a good thing. Let's mm-hmm. let's redefine it a little bit. And I think if we did that, we could stop a lot of issues in policing. So in terms of your own progression in Police Scotland, um, how soon after graduating in those early years did you start to take on leadership responsibility? And and for you, the culture you talk about of today in terms of improving it and how to do that, were they values that you were instilling as a frontline leader, as a sergeant and as an inspector? For me, you know, I think, you know, leaders, leadership isn't just the rank, it's it's the the roles you perform in policing. And very early on, I was probably, you know, I, I wanted to be a CID officer, a detective. Uh, that's what I wanted to do in policing. And I started to map my career towards that. So that's really more about technical ability, I think, when it comes to being a detective. It's about my my passion, my ability um, to be, a, you know, a, a lead investigator, taking charge. That's leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, that then leads to, I think, quality, quality of service. So I was really... I prided myself in good investigations, good rapport with witnesses, good rapport with uniform officers. No, there was no us and them. For me, it was, we're all together. I'm here to help you out. What do you need from me? Um, so I suppose that's my leadership starting to develop in, in that stage. And then 2000, I decided to completely change my focus and I went into training of recruits. So I became a sergeant. That's one of my first promotion. I was a sergeant um, at Tully Allen at the at the police college. So that was really leading the next generation of officers. Um, different lens to what I've got now. So, you know, back then I was very much teaching them to be the next detectives, the next crime investigators, because uh, you know, that that to me, but again, that quality. I was really, I remember back in the back in the 2000, 2001, two, really instilling, you know, some good values in officers about 
passion for the for the for the for, you know for the for the you know for the career um that loyalty again but more focusing on looking out for your mates i didn't really have this lens that i have now around a new type of loyalty but i think for me back in those days my leadership was about providing a good service for the public mm. you know i'm a real, a real believer in that what's that phrase every contact leaves a trace we mm. use that in detection but we can use it in our interactions with the public so it is about good victim care um, and if you take fast forward to where we are just now, victim care is important. We're talking about, talking about violence prevention. So looking after victims, really um, working well with um, with witnesses. So that was part of my career there. Came back as a sergeant and really started to, yeah, I think for those that I led as a sergeant, I've met a few people and they often talked about my my you know, my value shone through, that that integrity shone through to get to do good jobs to bring the team together. So I think one thing I did probably start to do when I came back from Tully Allen was start to think about who I am as a human being. Because, you know, the leadership work I do just now suggests the best leaders are the people that have sorted their own stuff out. They know who they are, right? And they use their values to to lead their teams, to 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 perform. Um, I, I like to have fun in my teams. I think when you've got a when you've got a, a team that is having fun where we're laughing and joking appropriately. Then the job gets done. People feel safe. They feel they can speak about things. And yeah, I felt I had a team back then who were very proactive, very open and honest with each other. Um, good tutors, built tutors, because in many ways, my job wasn't to lead the recruits. That's the tutor's job. So I just needed to instill that belief and that responsibility in the in the tutors I had. So yeah, I saw my leadership coming through there. And then I started to take another career turn and I went into prevention work. And I was very—I wasn't leading teams at that stage, but I was probably more leading a way of thinking mm. within policing. And then when I finally, you know, rose to chief inspector, two thousand and nine, I got a chief inspector's role within the violence reduction unit, and that's when I completely transformed. Now you talked about your experiences, you know, working with these young men on the night there, talking about violence, and how in the past you hadn't really been aware of wider work that's needed around violence prevention. When I when I went in as a chief inspector, I was told by my boss at the time, take your police hat off. It's time to change. And within about a year, six months to a year, I completely transformed my thinking about how we address violence. And my job was to communicate that to other officers. I often back then and still do from time to time get called a soft cop. Um, and just to start, for those who are listening, accountability is so important. You know, people who commit violence need to be held accountable fact mm. that doesn't that doesn't shape doesn't change in a prevention focus but we need to think wider than that so i started mm. to learn more about all the contributing fact the causes the factors of for, for violence start to generate a language and started to communicate that to people around me not 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 just other colleagues but friends family members you know if i'm speaking at a conference just to articulate a, a different language when it comes to violence like you use the word knife crime I don't like the word knife crime because I this might be shocking, but I don't think we have a knife crime problem. We have a violence problem. Mm. You know, knives will sit in drawers and mm. shelves until someone decides to pick them up. And mm. a knife crime, like sexual violence, starts long before we think it does. Starts in our words, our language, our relationships, our just, you know, failing in relationships. So these were, I, I, I suppose I went from leading teams to leading a conversation along with my colleagues in the violence reduction unit. So my leadership has probably been from leading people to leading a message, uh, a way of thinking. So yeah, leadership has been important for me in my years. 
in your time at the at the training college when you see recruits coming through one another observation of late has been the different types of people that are being attracted to policing um mm -hmm. and there's almost this confusion as to actually what is the role of policing in society you know um i've spoken in the media quite publicly that previously you know 15 20 years ago um one in five jobs that we would go to would be mental health or welfare related now one in five jobs is crime related the rest are welfare related the police service has very much supported other services in society which have either lacked in investment and and, and needed additional support because the policing can wear multiple hats do you think that has been a contributing factor to the increase and in the complications around the social environment of violence and equally the increase in violence we see today i think you know we talk all about mental health issues and you know i think we need to start including in that early years trauma Again, I'm not, I'm not excusing behavior. You know, mm -hmm. I think, you know, policing is too lot, too quick to badge mental health as a condition that's been diagnosed and we shouldn't be dealing with that. That should be mental health hospitals or practitioners. But, you know, our prisons are full of traumatized individuals. The vast majority of people, I think there was, there was some research came out that upwards of 90% of people in our prisons in Scotland, for example, are suffering from some, you know, trauma, traumatic, you know, adverse childhood experience. And we know from the studies that um, the more ACEs, the more adversity you have in childhood, um, your risk of early death increases greatly. But other risk factors are smoking, drinking, harmful consumption of alcohol and violence, both as victims, but also perpetrators as well. And let's face it, victims and perpetrators are often the same people, aren't they? Mm -hmm. they are, it's happenstance whether you end up in a court or in a mortuary slab. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the... That's the, the, the issue that we need to be talking more about. These are the same people that we tend to separate our services. So I think when we're talking about mental health, we need to include that trauma that is out in our, in our you know, um, communities. And trauma could be exposure to violence as, a, as an early, in, an early, in your early years. Um, that's why domestic abuse needs to be a number one priority for, Scott, for, for, for policing in the UK, because there'll never be peace. There'll never be peace in the home. Until, sorry, there'll never be peace in the streets until you have peace in the home. Mm. And a lot of officers just a lot that I meet still think, oh, it's just domestic abuse. And but you know, and I'm not saying that all exposure to violence to a kid will lead to um you being a victim or perpetrator, but the risk factors are there. And there's a there's a protective factor which we will probably talk about as we go through. But I think we need to really, really focus on on domestic abuse in homes. Um, because peace in the streets, peace in the world. Look at lots of the, the terrorism we see. If you look at the backstory to lots of our perpetrators. Um, domestic abuse is, is often the backstory. Again, I'm not excusing the behavior. We need to start to, to stall violence. We need to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to hold people accountable, but un better understand um, where it's coming from. And I think policing needs to be careful that we don't just walk away from mental health cases. And it's good to see that some forces do recognize this, there's still a need for them to attend certain, um, you know, certain types of incidents. But you're right, Ollie, you know, that other services, violence prevention is not just a policing issue. We can't police aware of this. We need lots of services. And that's one thing we did in the VRU very early on was to bring all the key players together um, to, you know, around the table to talk about what we're setting out to do in Scotland. One of the things I picked up on at the start you talked about in terms of, and, and a lot of this is driven by chief constables, um, 
And a lot of the success relies on the relationship that exists between policing and its communities and other social service providers. The last, you know, 12, 18 months, two years for policing has been inherently difficult and challenging. And I suppose a lot of what a lot of the culture of policing does stem from London. London seems to define the, the view of policing across the country, rightly or wrongly. The Met seems to be the heartland of how people think. And, and a result of the most recent report that came out, um, Louise Casey, defined the Met, I think, for the second time in its history as being institutionally racist. Now, um, Police Scotland's former commissioner uh, acknowledged that he believed his organisation was institutionally racist. And and I wanted to get your take on that because that makes it difficult for policing to interact with communities because of the level of apprehension and fear in the community of the type of organisation they're dealing with. But the mm. one thing that I worry about is that the word and the term institutionally racist is a bit of a throwaway tagline for everyone to say, yep, yeah, that's us. And nothing doesn't actually address the problem. You did a, an incredibly articulate piece online which i saw which got a lot of interaction a lot of response the institution the institutional racist tagline if we relate it to police scotland what's your view on this and more broadly how does it affect policing yeah you're right a few few i think a couple of weeks ago i put up something on linkedin about how i feel the term institutional racism has been it's, it's like a fashion statement for chief constables um and you know what society Let's, let's, let's look at wider, wider society. Do we have issues of racism in society? Yes, we do. Misogyny, sexism, homophobia. Yes, we do. Of course, that's going to impact on, on policing. It's going to impact on NHS. It's going to impact on all, all settings, institutions, organisations. Um, what, what chief constables need to do better before they communicate it outside is communicate it internally. Because that, that's the issue, because the back the, the, the backlash when Ian Livingston made that comment, you know, last year before he retired, um, the, the, the organization wasn't prepared. The officers on the ground, were, it's like, it like I heard a few cops, it was like getting a kick in the teeth mm. in many ways. And I think chief constables really need to, when they're speaking, they need to ensure they're speaking not only to the public, but their officers as well. I think that's really, really important. And I think, you know, you know, does policing have an issue? Of course it does. The last two years in Sarah Everard case highlights some major, major issues that um, highlight systemic issues around around you know racism, homophobia, or, or whatever it's going to be. And it isn't just about the behaviour; it's about how that institutional racism, sexism, has stopped officers speaking up. So it's not just about the actions of the people who are using that behaviour; it's about how the system stops the good officers speaking up right or because you you could you could all you could also argue that if a chief constable admits to institutional racism then they have admitted to a failure in their leadership so are they victims of, of the institutional racism as well by not being able to implement change i you know at that level of policing i think there's lots of egos at play i i see that quite a lot in in policing some wonderful senior officers out there but we need more leaders with the moral courage to really set the tone. Because I think a leader for me is someone who sets the mood music for the organization, the tone for the organization. And the, and the test of any leader is when they're not there, does the same music get played? And mm. I think that, I see that, you know, different, I think there's different records being played um, in some parts of policing. But I would like to see chief officers communicate this better within organization. And that isn't the online message, the online training. That's about just getting cops in the room and talking about these issues. And 
you know, when you talk about things like what you're doing with these podcasts, all, you allow the healthy norms to rise to the surface. You know, I'm, I'm sure if, you know, when I do the training I do with some colleagues, one of the first questions I ask, raise your hands if you think some, some offices need to be sacked. Every hand goes up, right? Because a police officer is the face of the service, aren't they? Whether they're in America murdering George Floyd or whether they are serving Met police officer who was convicted of murdering Sarah Everett all those years ago, we feel it. We, you know, we're horrified, disgusted, upset by these stories. So I think all organizations and chief constables need to invest more in face-to-face discussion-based trainings to get to get their, their, their cops and police staff, let's not forget police staff, talking about some of these big issues. Officers want to do the right thing. We join policing to help our communities. So why shouldn't, why wouldn't we, you know, you know, be starting these conversations? So I think chief constables need to be slowing down um, how they talk about these issues before they talk about it inside the organization to prepare. What do we mean by this term, institutional racism? What about sexism? What about homophobia? All these other issues that, you know, we're focusing, if we focus on that, we're missing the opportunity to focus on other issues as well. I was very fortunate and honoured to sit down and speak with last year, um, now retired, but I, if I was a gambling man, I'd say he'll be back into policing in the future. Um, uh, Assistant Commissioner uh, Neil Basu, who at the time was head of counterterrorism, and and, and he made the comment um, as one of the highest ranking ethnic police officers in the country at the time of interviewing him, that during the strategic command course at Brams Hill, the focus on such things within policing and the challenges around race and um, the demographics and different cohorts and the, and, and the different aspects that policing needs to challenge and needs to manage and understand was one of the smallest segments of this particular course, which is obviously the forward platform for very senior officers about to reach that SLT level, that senior level in policing. Yeah. And And one thing that I've always been worried about in terms of that term institutional institutionally racist is senior leaders coming out and making the announcement most recently uh, surrey's chief constable the lead for the mpcc came out and made that acknowledgement is it immediately looks down at the bottom of the organization the front line immediately you know that whereas there doesn't seem to be much vision across the organization amongst those people that set the policies that set the procedures that implement the culture for you, it, does there have to be more of senior leaders looking at themselves and their organisations and their senior management to say, right, what do we want us to be and how can we get ourselves out of it? Because ultimately, the boys and girls on the front line are doing what we say we want them to do and that we define that path for them. They follow it. Yeah. I think, you know, you know, you know the, the, the challenge for a senior leader in policing is that you don't become too disconnected with the frontline officer. So we need to make sure there's that connection. And that's the communication part I talked about. You know, a good, you know, a big um, tool for creating good culture is over-communication. People talk about communication, but I like to talk, I use the phrase over-communication to keep talking about it. It needs to be everywhere. It needs to be absolutely everywhere. And that isn't just you speaking, that's your um, people, you know, below you, below you, and, and everybody speaking. And and uh, and using the same language, that mood music I just talked about. I was fortunate enough; I got asked to do a a piece on the new command course, it's senior leadership training, whatever it's called now, with the police college. So I did a, a session with a cohort um, at the back end of last year. It was called Courageous Conversations. How do we how do we start to, you know, if you'd said to me, Ollie, you know, years ago, would you be 
tuning the future future chief constables, I would have just said, no, no chance of that. But I had a great opportunity to spend two hours with this group. And um, you could just see the curiosity. They, they, they get it. They need to be showing that moral courage that I, that I think is a key part of being a good leader and, and living by their values. I said before, any leader to be effective needs to understand themselves. Self-awareness is really, really key for all of us, not just chief constables. But what what gets you up in the morning? What makes you tick? What excites you? Uh, what do you believe in? Um, because this moral compass that we, I think, all of us have can really help us, um, you know, lead organisations in a kind, supportive, safe way. But it can also motivate us to act, you know, to act and do the right thing when we see a colleague who's a victim. Like, I wish I'd known all those years ago how to speak to my colleague who has been bullied. I didn't know how to do that. Mm. Um, now, I'd, now I'd know exactly what to say. You know, if I'm if I'm on the streets of Minneapolis, you know, when when my when my tutor constable, which Derek Chauvin was, is murdering a guy in front of me, I'm sitting in a three days police service. I know what I would do now because I've undergone training how to how to have these non confrontational um, interventions with colleagues and conversations with colleagues. Um, but I think police 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 chiefs just now talk a lot about since the issues of the Sarah Ever Everard case, they talk all about call-out cultures. They want call-out cultures. I don't, I don't think call-out cultures is a helpful phrase. I like to use call-in cultures where we look out for each other. And if I stop you from doing something that could be career-ending, not only am I helping you as a friend, but I'm also helping my organisation. I'm helping my communities that I, I, I've joined to serve by stopping something harmful taking place. Um, so I think, you know, Chief Constables, yeah, be more connected with your officers and your teams and um, invest in these courageous conversations, not just for you to have, but for your cops to have as well. The science says we can train people to be more active. Policing has never been under so much pressure to meet the demands of an incredibly diverse society um, right across the UK uh, in terms of the number of different demographics, you know, in terms of race and religions and cultures and, and, and a myriad of different um, examples of where police have to sort of alter their approaches to uh, supporting different communities you know has policing become too politicized and can it be everything to everybody in terms of trying to meet the needs and expectations of of a variety of different diverse communities it's a challenging one you know to, to answer properly i think there's no doubt that political interference we've seen that a lot and you mentioned the met previously we've seen a lot of political interference there um, taking place and you know I'd like to think that we still have police chief constables who have that independence that operational independence mm. um, and I think we need politicians to be more of, more aware of that you know that that independence that that that, that chief constables have so I think it I think there, there's no doubt that and I think the, on, the onset of media media coverage social media 24-7 media you know never you know more, I think now more than ever we are so much under the spotlight and I think one thing I'd like to say is that there's there's a there's a backlash and and I understand it. Police officers are are tired, and that is coming out um, in a hey, we're police. You should respect us. You need to respect mm -hmm. police. And I you know I think the public deserve the respect. We need to work. We need to earn the respect. You know, public public deserve respect all the time. No matter what they've done, we still need to respect them. And that might be following the rule of law, following a process for an arrest. We need to respect that. I think police officers, one thing I've learned about policing is we need to earn that respect. Um, and um, I think we need to welcome some of the 
some of the inspection that's coming in and um, lean into it a little bit. There's, so I think we're going away from the political interference to an extent, but I do, I do, I do agree. I think you know, in the last the last year, we've seen a lot of um, knee jerk from some politicians who just want to hold police accountable, while whilst not looking at the bigger picture of their involvement, their role that may have created the laws that may have created um, the the you know the public out the public you know um, speaking out and wanting more accountability. So it's a, it's a it's a big question. But I think we always go back to that operational independence of policing. And I still think we see that. I still think that's there. I do, mm. I do believe that. Because one of the other greatest challenges for policing right now, and I certainly see it as a significant challenge for Sir Mark Rowley in, in London, is the retention of staff and equally the recruitment of police officers. And, and, and we want our police services to be reflective of the communities they police. And as such, if the police are the public and the public are the police, there's going to be instances where we find people that have attitudes and beliefs which don't align with probably mm -hmm. um, those that we'd expect of police officers. And that's going to happen. Is, is that to be expected? Can we, um, does that mean those people should be immediately removed from policing or should it, as you say, just this continually talking up culture to try and change people's beliefs and mindsets? Yeah. You know, Policing does can attract a certain type of individual. We know that. We know that, you know, a uniform power and um, we need a recruitment process and a police culture that either works to change that person's behavior or identifies it quickly and doesn't either let them in the job or mm. gets them out of the job. And, you know, in the last few years, recruitment and policing is online, isn't it? It's very, mm. there's, no, there's no person to, per very little person to person contact. And in policing, you know, character matters, mm. character matters. And you don't learn about a person's character through an online application form. No. Sorry, you don't do that. So I think policing, in some respects, needs to go back to where it was and invest in getting the right people. Um, but then the second thing is how do we create a culture where um, officers do react to an attitude? Where, you know, we're, you know, you know we're, 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 we're recruiting a, a generation of young young people, young people coming in that Generation Z, you know, they're the ones going out there and saving the planet and doing all the activism and whatnot. But they're people who are suffering with mental health. They're also the the generation that is exposed to you know some really toxic messages online. You know, you know, in the last few weeks, there's been reports of big increases on peer and peer sexual abuse. You know, young 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 girls at 13, 14, victims of of um, men's men's harmful behaviors, attitudes. And, the, and what the, the evidence is telling us is that these are usually 16, 17, 18 year old guys. Where, where are these men coming to? Mm. They're coming into organizations like policing, military, fire and rescue, other organizations. Uh, I'm not gonna go at men when I say that, but we know the predominant group for harm doing is, is male, is men. Um, so I think we need to, one, look at our recruitment process and it needs to go back to some sort of I don't know. I don't know. You, you, you've been in the, in the police before. When I joined policing, I, I had someone visit the house and sit down with me and and ask me questions. My mum was there. My dad was there because he wanted them to. They wanted to ask them questions as well. Um, so that home visit was really really powerful. Um, and they got to know me. They got to know me and my my background and 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 they could get a gut feeling as well as what I was saying. Um, and I was listening to a a. a, a 
uh, an interview between two football coaches the other day there. And the, it was the, the manager of Tottenham um, who came from Rangers. I think he came from Rangers up in Scotland. And he talked about, yeah, sometimes I'm speaking to these new players and you know what? If I don't get a good feeling, they might be the best player in the world, but they ain't coming to the team. Because mm-hmm. one, one player, toxic player, can poison the team. And he's right. And I and and you I think we need to invest more in, in our recruitment process. But I do believe that we need to do better at creating cultures where people do speak up. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I helped Police Scotland develop a campaign called Don't Be That Guy. And Don't Be That Guy was a campaign to 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 highlight to men about problematic behaviors, attitudes, um, and give them a role to support it and to do something about it and be more preventative. And I, I heard from a, a, a cop in England, hey, Graham, just to let you know, I've, I've used your cop on a, on a probationer who was getting a bit silly, mm. and he got it. Thanks for wow. that. So this this tutor, who's an, had just, no, enough's enough. I need to speak to this guy about this guy's attitudes. And who knows? I, it, there's a good chance, and we know all the evidence says that with the right form of intervention, we can change a mindset if, if you do it right. There are people in policing who will never change. They need to go. They're the ones that you, I, all our friends and colleagues and all the serving officers listening to this, they want to go because they're damaging our reputation as an organization. So I think um, dealing with this, 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 this question, there's two areas, recruitment and the culture as well. Keeping harm doers in check is a phrase I often use. One of the, the challenges, and you touched on it briefly there in terms of the type of recruit or the generations which follow behind you and I into the vocation of policing is this um, ever-increasing online world that they're exposed to or grown up with, whether that be social media, expectations placed on what their lifestyle should be like, what yeah. um, what what the definition of happy is in terms of what they visualize on Instagram or TikTok, and then the ability to have a conversation between two individuals like we are now and be able to understand that it's okay to disagree on something, mm-hmm. but their ability to have that conversation face-to-face rather than where they feel confident WhatsApping each other or talking online leads to a degree of emotions and content being created that because you're not seeing the person face-to-face, you can't see how that response is being interpreted. You can't see whether or not you've offended someone and, and you push the boundaries. And how do we, you know, that's a huge challenge in terms of, you know, I, I, I often, just a quick scenario, I've gone past a couple of carrier vans. And I don't, I'm not just sort of singling out the Met here, but you just see officers buried in their phones. No one's talking to each yeah. other. And it, and it feels to me like we're, we're scared to have that conversation because we don't want to have a difficult conversation. We don't want to offend or we, we don't want to say something that may be wrong. Is Am I right with that? Is that a challenge for policing and people coming through? I think, well, this is the generation where the phone is glued to your ears, glued to your face all the time. Um, and, I, and, and again, why I think we need to go back to basics in some respects. And then if we really want a professional, respectful policing service that is trusted, I still believe policing is trusted. That's, that's, that's something I believe in, um, despite what we read in the papers. But we need to invest in discussions. You know, if we're, if we're saying that the vast majority of our police officers come to work and do a good job. We need to help the individual officer know what their colleagues are thinking, because that's the power of conversation. I've gone back to what I said a little while ago, if all you're doing is doing training 
around e-learning training or on Teams or on Zoom, you've you've not got the opportunity to to sit and talk to each other. You know, a lot of the work that I do is about um, redefining loyalty. So what does it mean to be a good colleague, a good friend? But I also want to get people talking. So they start to find that in the main, most people think and do as they do as well. You know, most, most people in this world are good people. You know, uh, we have more in common than which divides us. And some of the good feedback we got from West Yorkshire and our, when I did the pilot of the, the peer intervention program that we did last year, um, it was a handful of, more than a handful, loads of people said, thank you for this, this chance to talk to my team. You know, we were bringing teams together, the team four in Leeds, 80 people in a massive training room, two or three trainers spending a whole day with these guys. Not that they weren't learning as much from me and my friend, my colleague, they were learning from each other. Mm. And what they're learning from each other is that we care. Some cops need to go. Um, I want you to intervene on me if I'm making a mistake. If you see me, me making a mistake or, or losing it with a prisoner, because let's face it, cops lose it. Red mist, mm. stress, it's, it's there. Mm. It's, 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 you can't stop it sometimes. And if you, so if, I'm, if, I'm, if you see me starting to get angry with somebody, I want you to tap me in the shoulder. So we were having these conversations. So it was about cops looking out for each other. So I think, you know, we can't ignore the, you know, even, even the exposure to the likes of Andrew Tate and other, you know, grenade throwers that we have out there. You know, lots of the issues that we're seeing in policing are coming from men. And we know from the research, this is, again, I'm not having a go at men here. We know from research, like in male-dominated cultures, like military, fire and rescue, policing, we will see these behaviours. It's called the masculinity contest culture. That's what the research calls it, playing up to each other. Um, and um, we can't ignore that the vast majority of harm doers, people who are causing harm in the last two or three years, are men. But also mm. it's the, us guys find it hard to speak to our male friends about what they're doing. It's built, I think, built in us from a young age not to challenge our mates because that's disloyal. But I'd actually say you'd be more of a friend if I stopped you from doing something that could lead to you losing your job, impacting on you, your family, and making me feel crap by not intervening on you. So I think, you know, policing needs to have some courageous conversations. And as guys, as men in policing, needs to have conversations about, you know, yeah, if I see my male friend behaving in that type of way, I need to do something about it. And here's why. I'm being loyal to you. I'm being loyal to my organization. And importantly, I'm being loyal to myself by doing the right thing. So I think, you know, again, we've gone back to culture a lot tonight. And, you know, people think I go on too much about peer intervention and active bystandership, but the evidence says it works. So it's just food for thought. So moving on to your work in the uh, violence reduction unit, and I suppose reflecting on my previous views of of. And, and I'll call it what I called it previously, this this knife crime epidemic or as what you'd probably refer to as a violence epidemic yeah. in society. Yeah. Um, you know, since 2016, more than 115 young lives lost in London um, to violence on the streets. Um, all of those attributed to knives. But as you say, it's just a, a weapon that's available. Um, I suppose I wanted to try and understand why, you know, the cause and effect of that and what can we do to to better understand it. So I got together with 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 a young man I actually met in a shop who sold my wife a pair of trainers and we got talking and one thing led to another. And, um, you know, we've, we've become quite close and I'm sort of championing him from the corner to, 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 to sort of have an impact in his life. And as, as he is in mine and, and, and 
three young men and myself got together and spoke about this. And the number one thing that struck me the most was, and these are young men that previously carried knives and then made the conscious decision to stop, is that they didn't feel safe and that they were in fear. And one of the young men who was sitting with us actually was the, was the victim of a very serious um, assault in terms of that he was stabbed nine times. Thank goodness survived. But then suddenly, you know, his immediate friends around him said, well, if this can happen to Devonte, it can happen to any of us. And they were in, ex you know, that's when their decision making started to to start arming themselves. In, and that was a mistaken identity. Someone thought he was someone else from a different postcode and bang, they were in. And that was the end of it. So I wanted to talk about sort of the catalyst for that, because that was the first big point that really struck me, the fear part. Yeah. Is that something that was consistent with the work that you did in the studies? And how do we overcome that? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Carrying a weapon like a knife um, is more often than not for protection. You know, people will often badge it up as trying to act tough or be the hard man or, or whatever. But I, I believe that's a guise. That's just a guise that guys hide behind. But it's predominantly young men again, because it's the, you know, when, in violence prevention, we talk about risk factors and protective factors. And the risk factors are predominantly young men. Um, so fear is a big big reason why people are carrying are carrying knives and i think the fear comes from this perception that most people are carrying weapons we know from research that you know around young people 99% of young people do not carry knives so most people don't carry a weapon but if you're in a tight community where you're seeing pictures of knives on social media um knives recovered in stop and search by policing or in the media is talking about it then your perception of what people are doing is going to be influenced by what you're seeing and reading and, and hearing about. Um, our biggest influence is our peers, right? So what we think other people are doing is going to influence our behavior. So we need to reduce the fear. We need to reduce the fear. Reduce the fear, we increase the opportunity to, 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 to make change. The, the story you've talked there about three young men who thought, you know, I need to change, that's come from each other. Individually, they probably thought, I need to change but they'd be too scared to, lots of young men are too scared to talk to their friends about these issues. I remember years ago, um, watching a documentary about gangs in London and it was Plan B, the rapper was doing the, the narrative for it. And he spoke to a young man in a, a youth club. And there's this young young kid, hoodie up, and it's no more than 13, 14. And, and Plan B said, how are you feeling? And if you excuse my language, the young boy said, fucking stressed. Mm -hmm fucking stressed and he was in this tight box he's in what we call the man box women have a box as well but the man box is tough no emotion violence gets results i'm ready for this and i think the box is different sizes in different places for him it was tight tight box no weakness um and that stress could lead to him using a knife or becoming a victim of his own knife or, or whatever that's going to be. So I think what your young men are talking about is so real. You know, policing often says it's about role models. It's about one, negative role models have been tough. For me, it's the underlying is the fear. Why do people carry knives? For protection. They're scared because they see all these stories. And and I know there's big, big debate in policing about showing knives that have been recovered on social media. I don't like that. And in Scotland, mm. we stopped showing knives in our papers and on our social media feeds many, many years ago. We stopped bringing knives into schools. 
Um, why? I know all the psychology says that if you're communicating that norm, that knives are out there, then you're actually making the problem worse. There's a psychologist called Robert Sheldini in America who talks about the big mistake. And, the, and, he, and he, there's an article on, if you just search uh, the big mistake, Robert Sheldini, you'll find his article. And it says, in our efforts to solve a problem, we inadvertently make it worse by communicating the wrong norm. And what he suggests is we need to balance it out with more positive stuff. Look for the strengths, the positives. Your, your, your three guys are a positive story. We need to get that in all the boroughs and find more three guys. And because they'll be there, they'll be there. They'll be all will be there. Um, so focus more on strengths than, you know, by all means, police report what stop and searches are doing, but don't put these big knives. Because all it's doing is communicating, I need a bigger knife. That's my viewpoint shared by a lot of people. And the evidence says we need to stop showing knife images. And that was going to be my point is that obviously, again, in the last 12, 18 months, two years, um, stop and search has been a point of heated discussion yeah. amongst community leaders, amongst politicians, amongst police. Some people saying more hands need to be in pockets, more stop and search. You know, Norman Brennan on Twitter says more stop and search, five years in prison, et cetera, et cetera. Throws mm -hmm. in a couple of hand grades here, there and everywhere. And, and I think that policing puts those photos up, which, to be honest with you, before what you just said, I was a supporter of because I wanted the community to see what the risks that police were dealing with mm -hmm. and that stop and search worked. But I understand the rationale to where you're coming from in terms of, I understand that, I can press it because I've been a police officer, but a member of the public or a young person seeing that will think, holy shit, look what's out there. As you yeah. quite rightly said, I've got a tool up bigger than I was before because quite clearly yeah. this is not gonna this, this little Swiss Army knife is not gonna defend me. I've got to I've got to upgrade. Yeah. So yeah. I can see the rationale behind that and it makes perfectly good logical sense. So so if you were if you were hypothetically working in the media team within the Met Police, you would say, as of today, we don't talk about we don't show people that sadly fall victim to mental health and suicide for reason that we don't want that to affect people. We're going to take the same viewpoint with serious violent crime and knives. Yeah. You know, you know, my, my viewpoint is just talk about, yeah, you, you've done stop and searches mm. um, and we recovered, but don't show, why show the knife? Fear. People often say the reason why policing do it is to communicate to the public what they're doing, but actually we know from um, crime surveys, which look at um, public views and attitudes, the, the 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 public perception of violence is completely out of kilter from what the reality is. You know, if you think about it, you know, the public think that violence is poor, and and if you read the media, that that's that's the reality. But if you look at the the statistics, we are living in quite a safe time in society. That that's something which we find. So I think we often, if we're not careful, we can raise the fear not just with the public, but with these young men that we're talking about. So by all means, talk about what you're doing, but just don't show the knives. I mean, what's the benefits? You know, policing, it's not just about, about what we're doing, it's about following the science, and the science says stop it. The science says stop it. Some forces in England, I've stopped it. On the back of what myself, Niven Rennie, who was the last head of the VRU, were talking about, they've listened. Um, and the psychology, the psychology backs it up. And people want people want it all. What about knives? You know, we we want the evidence that has knives in the research. There, there's research in Scotland that suggested that you know taking knife imagery out 
will make things better. But there's, there's, there's decades of social science research that says if all you do is focus on the negative, you make the problem worse. You need to balance it. I think, you know, we need to balance the negative with the... It's like talking about men's violence against women and girls. If all we're talking about is how bad it is out there, we're actually not really going to make a difference. You know, bad news sells stories. Bad news sells books. We need to talk about what's going on. We can't ignore the bad stuff, but balance it more. So stop and search. You know, you know, a little-known fact is that when the VRU started in Scotland, um, stop and search was was really was really pushed. You know, we had um, Lord Advocates' guidelines around custody was a norm. Um, I think there was increases in sentences. One of my first jobs in the violence reduction unit was to coordinate law enforcement. So at that time, we had eight Scottish police forces, and my job was to we ran the Safer Scotland campaign, which was a a campaign. All the not just all the year, so not just at certain times, but all year round. And I would bring forces together every quarter. What are you doing around violence? And the, the two main themes were knife-related, weapon-related violence and domestic abuse. Gangs, weapons, domestic abuse. So we we started to build a whole portfolio of good practice around enforcement. Swift visible justice is important. The first step to any prevention campaign for violence for me is contain and manage. And that's what Stop and Search is about. You know, people talk about the public health approach to tackling violence. I don't think a lot of people understand what we mean by a public health approach. So let me make a little, a little analogy here. So let's think of COVID, right? All back in 2020, one of the first things we did was contain and manage it. So we isolated people with underlying health conditions. We um, separated people, we wore masks. So we tried to contain what we had with COVID. Violence, contain and manage is deal with violence that we're seeing on our streets. And that is through good law enforcement, good, robust law enforcement. But at the same time, we need to do more. If all you're doing is stop and search, and one, that becomes very tiring for police officers, the risks present the risks. And also, it becomes a it becomes a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If all we're doing is, is just um, using the hammer, then every, every problem becomes a nail. Does that make sense? I think that there's, a, there's, a, there's a phrase... If the, if the only tool you have is the hammer, then all your problems will be nails. So if stop and search, so something like that anyway, so stop and search, if it's used too much, that's when we get the pushback. And that's what we're getting. I think I'm seeing, I'm seeing you know, especially in London, that, that, that pushback. It needs to be, we need to find a blend of the enforcement, but also the longer term prevention stuff. And prevention for me is about finding a blend, a blend of the enforcement stuff, but also the other work around um early years you know if we, if we create safe stable um um nurturing through through early years care we can we can we can we can prevent violence if we there's other research which says that we can equip young people with life skills life skills you know walking away from negative peer influence we can um we can reduce violence we talk about um we can talk about you know um, reducing access to lethal means so reducing access to knives, guns, whatever, is another way of doing it. Harmful consumption of alcohol is another way. So we start to, and, and also focusing on cultural norms that support violence. So that's focusing on, I talked about risk factors and protective factors. The big risk factor for violence just now is young men. Men make up the most at-risk group of perpetrating violence, but also being victims. So we need to develop programs, you know, that focus on young men. 
as victims and as, as as perpetrators as well. So that for me is about you know addressing some of the messages around what does it mean to be a man in London in 2023. Um, that's about um, getting groups of men like you, you're talking about together, talking about how they really feel around around issues. So for me, it's about containing managing swift visible justice, but then having that, bringing all the other people on board, the other partners, the other people, and working together. I see too much of a disconnect between policing and the and the rest of the prevention work. Mm. Maybe uh, it'll be going on in pockets beautifully. Yeah, I, I know that for a fact, but I'd like to see more joining up of, of policing and the likes of the, the mayor's VRU. So yeah. coming together more and being seen together. Because one thing we did with policing and the VRU in 2000, in the early days of 2004, before I started, um, was policing worked so well with the VRU. We had a, a detective chief superintendent in charge, um, along with Karen McCluskey, who was a forensic psychologist, um, who were part of part of policing. But so policing was heavily involved in driving this this forward, but bringing together all the different organisations. We had we had politicians in our office. Theresa May was in our office. We had um local authorities learning more about what we're doing because one again going back to we talked about culture change the communication was clear and we wanted to get people to believe that you know the strap line in scotland was violence isn't inevitable it's preventable and that still exists today we still believe that violence doesn't have to happen and you know our homicide rates have come down from i think approximately 165 in 2004 or 5 and for the last 10 or so years it's been about 60. So wow. something's working. And people often say, oh, that's Scotland. <laughs> violence is violence, Ollie, wherever it is. Right? Whether it's in London, Birmingham, Edinburgh, Scotland as a whole, violence is violence. So we've done something right, and we're still doing that. And this, the investment is still there in Scotland. One of the other key points, one of the big takeaways for me as well, and I suppose this fits in with the whole social media exposure and what one defines as a lifestyle that they should try and achieve, whether it be driving the fast car, the gold watches, the lovely trainers, et cetera. And that comes down to sort of how you earn money and opportunity. And I, I picked up on something that you said in the last couple of days, you know, wouldn't it be a, a scary situation where if, when someone was convicted, we actually gave them a paid occupation or a job yeah. or, you know, you know, how scary would that be? And I think myself, and one of the points that the, the, the boys came out with when I was talking to them was opportunity. You know, yeah. just the opportunity to be able to get a good job, to be able to buy the things that they want to buy and not fall into this vicious mindset of the only way I'm going to be able to do that is by committing crime. Yeah. Opportunity for you, a big takeaway? Hope. You know, for me, if we could bottle hope mm. and inject people with it, then we could solve many, many issues. You know, we've got people living in our community. Again, I'm not excusing behaviour, so don't think... You know, people often think, oh, you're going soft again, Graham. No, you know, it's not about being soft, it's about being smart. Yeah. We need not soft policing, smart policing. And, you know, I remember Karen McCluskey, who was uh, one of our co-directors of the VRU, you know, she said many years ago, the best ideas are the ones that scare the hell out of you at first. And she's right. You know, I, I flippantly use that phrase. Imagine if we sentenced people to paid employment. And we tried that out in, in Scotland. We... We, you know, every every year for about four or five years, three or four years, we took a group of young men, um, a cohort of young men, and they went and they worked with the Edinburgh Military Tattoo. So every year in, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, we have the big tattoo, the big extravaganza, 
and usually the the one of the one of the Scottish regiments, um, they are the sort of um, stagehands. So they're the ones that do all the running on and off the the, the castle Esplanade every year. So we what we did is we took young men um, to work with the military for for three weeks, and we paid them, paid them a salary, um, and that often led to that stability that we we gave them that sense of coherence, sense of things could get better. We started to give them skills. So we're giving life skills, which is what all the evidence says, um, and they got paid. And the number of young men, yeah, some young men relapsed. That's the that's the issue. That's the that's what happens. That's what happens mm -hmm. with violence. It can go back um, because you know that that does happen. But we we had a lot of success. We we the Commonwealth Games were in Glasgow in 2014, and we got permission to bring some uh, about 30 people, men, women together um, from a different lived experience background and we paid them to help out in the city during the Commonwealth Games and um, you know I think one of the projects the VRU tried, tried out was um, we bought one of these big um, fast food trucks and we had a whole program around mentoring and employ employability you know if you in America they have the Braveheart Industries Father Greg Boyle um, set up you know I think initially it was a, a bakery um, and that brought in gang gang members. You know the best way out of a you know the best way to judge a dodge a bullet is to get them a job or something something like that. There was phrases used by there, and Father Greg Boyle basically proved that when you give that alternative, and and you give people hope that things can get better, you can turn people around, and that's what people want. I mean, people want to bring up their kids. They want to be a good dad. They want to be a good mother. They want to be respected in their communities um but if you lack that hope then what's the point and that's and, it and that leads me to i suppose to the social aspect of this in terms of a cohesive family unit and, and and you made the point right at the start until we solve domestic violence and family violence in the home we're not going to solve or we're going to struggle to solve the violence on the streets now a lot of these young men that i you know the three young men i spoke to um one of those came from a broken home and there's been a couple of responses to a few of my takeaways that parenting is the key here you know these parents have lost control you know my kids aren't out at 10 o'clock at night you know i know where they are you know and they've been brought up not to do x y and z what's the social aspects of this in terms of the responsibility that should be placed on parents to even sort of forego the you know the need for police intervention yeah you know we hear a lot about oh it's the parents fault but yeah. Let's let let's 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 be honest here. Lots of the parents that we are talking about are people with unresolved traumatic issues in their lives. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's like they they want to be good parents, but they just can't be because they were never parented. And you know, all these issues that are, are at play. You know, the big debate and around the, the politicians just now is the Labour Party talking about um, supervised teeth cleaning. And immediately the opposition talk about, oh, nanny state, nanny state. Why not? You know, some kids need that support. Some parents need that support to, to, to do. And it, for me, it isn't about the, the, the state taking over. It's about the state realizing it has a responsibility to, because if we, if, if we can support young kids, you know, with teeth cleaning, we can stop major health issues in the future. What's, I don't see any problem with that, to be honest with you. And I think, you know, we need to create safe, stable relationships. Does it have to be mum, dad? No, it doesn't. Just a safe, stable relationship. You talked about resilience at the start. Resilience isn't something we're born with. It's something we get. 
something we get from our our parents, from our sports coaches, our teachers. You know, there's a lovely TED talk by a lady called Rita Pearson, and it's called Every Child Needs a Champion. And she's spot on. We need someone who's batting for us, someone who's looking out for us. And if you don't have that, if you remember, there's a, a young man in Scotland who said, if, if you have to look beyond the dinner table for a, a role model, you're already at a disadvantage. Okay, so we need to start to think about, yeah, the role models and help our parents, but I think instilling people like sports coaches, scout leaders, um, teachers, police officers, that you have a role to, to look out for, for young people um, in your communities. Um, again, I'm not being soft here. The evidence says that. If we, if we create safe, stable relationships and we can equip young people with life skills, we can provide an alternative, a counterbalance to some of the issues that's going on in their lives. So to give you a hypothetical, as a result of my podcast, you know, I, I um, have taken up the offer or, or invited to meet with um, one chief superintendent in London, Andy Britton, who's in charge at Croydon. Um, I'm sure he's one of many very senior officers grappling and trying to understand how to how to best yeah. police this issue, understanding that we can't police our way out of it. You know, that's very much, I think, the theme of what we're talking about here tonight. If you were to if you were sitting in that hot seat of the borough commander where you've got this significant violence issue where you're tragically giving footpath briefing after footpath briefing of another young person that's lost their life to a senseless act of violence, what would be your I don't know, top what not top tips, but what would your strategy be in terms of trying to, to make an impact? So you're talking about if I was like a divisional commander having an impact on a division. Yeah. You know, for me, you know, something we've talked about, you know, look at, look at, you know, the violence reduction strategy from Scotland has been held up as one of the world's leading. And don't just say that's Scotland, right? This is London. You know, violence is violence. We looked around the world for innovation around, around um, prevention. Lots of the stuff that we did in Scotland came from the likes of um, New York, Baltimore, you know, the, the serve program that um, was done in, in Glasgow, which brings gang members together came from the States. A program I brought to Scotland, put a kilt in it, the Mentors and Violence Prevention Program, was a program that came from the US. So violence is violence. That's the first thing. So for me, look at that BLU strategy and it will talk about contain and manage. So do, do what you've got to do and support your cops. Make sure your cops know what you're doing and what is part of it. Something bigger than just going out, getting figures. It's part of a whole violence reduction strategy. Get Find out what's working. Right. Don't just have lots of different things going on, because if if it's working, then do more of it. Don't do less of it. Right. The evidence says if you if something's working, you do you scale it up. Like now we have the vaccine for COVID. We've scaled it up with violence prevention. Find things that work and then don't don't change your mind after six months. If it's working, do it and do more of it and communicate that. Make sure you communicate that to your officers. But then it's about bringing in all the different people. You know, I think I remember you hearing you said recently about how youth work has been decimated. I, I think that's, mm. that's a, you know, prevention starts in the community, doesn't it? Mm. You know, we can't we can't place aware of this. We need to empower our communities. You know, go into our communities, work with our community. Don't take the lead on this. And youth, you know, work with youth groups, work with partner organisations, um, and and support them. Be there. Basically, meet communities where they're at in some respects. So start to 
um, you know, go into that and start to find out what's going on and look at good practice. And I know in the VRU in London, there should be some really good practice by now emerging. So start to bring it in. You know, uh, you know, we all, we're always looking for this brand new idea, aren't we? We talk about brand new ideas. And I think that's when you've got a, if you've got a big ego that you want to be seen, that's my idea. One thing I've learned about prevention is that leave your ego, leave it at home. <laughs> because if something works, the creativity is not about finding a new idea to replace it. It's about bringing that idea from America and bring it to Scotland and making it fit a new setting. So bringing something from, I don't know, Kingston to another borough. You know, if it works there, why, why won't it work with us? So find out what's working. Give people that role. What's working? What can we be doing differently? Um, and you know, those three guys that you're talking about, get them in. You know, over these last couple of weeks, the power of storytelling, the post mm -hmm. office drama, you know, what's that led to? Empathy. Masses of empathy in our country. So storytelling, build empathy, get police officers to think differently. I'm, I'm loving your curiosity, Ollie. How do, we, how do you instill that? Your, your, your role now is to communicate this to police officers who think tough is best. But you know what? If we're going in there whacking moles all the time, not only are we going to not really make a long-term difference, we're actually exposing our officers to more risk. And the trauma, you, you talked right at the start. We need to reduce the trauma that's out there. Reduce the fear, reduce the trauma, reduce the violence that our officers are being exposed to because they deserve less exposure to trauma they deserve to go home when the shift ends they deserve their meal breaks they deserve to feel safe which a lot of cops don't just now um so i think invest in violence prevention strategies at work and the public health model is there to be to be used and it's been used successfully in scotland so why not elsewhere and, and it is being used elsewhere a lot of the vr using in england and wales now are using the same model and I'm working with a few VRUs just now, um, providing training, but also consultancy around some of the stuff we've been talking about today. Do you think that um, organisations such as the IOPC, the Independent Office for Police Complaints, play a role in the violence reduction strategy across the UK? You know, you see more and more... Um, the relationship between the IOPC and policing, I, I, I don't envisage would ever be a fantastic one. I think troops would often see it as a, you know, as a probably an unpleasant arena that they don't want to be in. Yeah. But I also, I also strongly believe that it is a necessary organisation to have in terms of the independence overview of, of police corruption and complaints. But equally, we need to be able to give officers the confidence to use legislation, policy and procedure to enact change where it's needed. Stop and search being one of those particular um, piece of legislation which is very topical but you know the result of that can be police complaints and the process they take and the length those complaints can go on for seems yeah. to me to be not only unsustainable but equally very unfair to officers who are acting in the course of their duty do the IOPC and other organizations such as that have a role to play in this um you know it's, it's a really complex question there Ollie and I think, you know, one thing, one thing I've learned not to do over the last few years is comment. In fact, I often get asked, can you comment on this arrest? Mm. And I'll say, I wasn't there. Mm. You know, I wasn't there. You know, I can't comment. I wasn't, you know, you know the, the camera can give new angles and I'm not sure what's going on in that officer's head, what happened before, what's, whatever. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think, you know, we can't ignore as policing that the bad stuff that's gone on in the last two or three years. We can't ignore that. We just, and that is leading to even more scrutiny 
on, on, on policing. So I think, you know, something we've talked about beforehand is how, you know, one thing they found in the United States that when they implement programs like peer intervention, active bystandership, they actually communicate to the public that they want to try and reduce incidents of mistakes, poor behavior, um, and that starts to build trust and confidence because that, that's, that's one thing that the evidence says. So it's very hard for me to say, you know, I, I think going back to what we've talked a lot tonight about chief, chiefs and police leaders, well, you need to support your officers, keep that trust. But I think policing it needs to expect this is going to keep happening. We're going to keep seeing these horrific things happening on camera and people like the IOPC are probably going to be duty bound to follow the process. It's just a shame in the last few days it's gone it's gone on on Twitter on, on X or Twitter. We saw that spat between the IOPC and the Met. That's my view on professional. That needs to be dealt mm -hmm. with with a phone call. And that's a, that's another example of of peer intervention. You know, the IOPC should have said, you know what, I'm not putting this on Twitter. I'm going to phone up that officer. So that you know, there should have been someone in that office there saying. I don't know about you, but when I post things on Twitter, sometimes I, I might have a, a ready response to you or somebody else, and I look at it and go, nah, I don't, I don't need to say that. <laughs> if I really want to say that, I can phone them up and say it. Because all you're doing is you're just inflaming the whole, the whole environment. So I think, you know, I think it goes back to a clear, a clear strategy. We want officers to go out and do stop and search. We know why we need to be doing that. Here's, the, here's the, the areas we're going to be doing the stop and search. We need police officers, when they do their stop and search, to be following the process, saying the right things, recording it, doing it doing it properly. And if if I witness a colleague not doing it properly, I say something to that colleague there and then. Because that is, that's great. That's great um, practice. And because cops make mistakes. We make mistakes. We're not all, most of us, if, if, if mistakes happen, it's not intentional. Yes, we have people who do behave intentionally. We, we, we know that. But cops are stressed. Cops are under pressure. Mistakes happen. So if I see a colleague making a mistake, stop them before it becomes the big, the big issue. Um, and if we create a culture like that, then if you come and speak to me to point out a mistake I'm making, thanks for that, Ollie. I really appreciate you doing that. Thank you for that. I didn't realize that. And we've, we've got evidence in the States of officers who are more supportive of when an officer challenge, not challenges them, but points out a mistake they've made because the whole culture is built around that to do that. So I think I think it's a difficult question to totally answer. But for me, policing always need to open itself up to you know um, um, scrutiny from the members of the public. They deserve our respect. We need to earn that respect. It's a it's a difficult one for me to completely pin down. And but I think you know I think. It's clear the IOPC, if they were aware of what policing are doing in that area, that would be a good thing. So I agree that then part of the strategy would be a good thing. Were you ready to leave policing when you hung up your uniform? I was. You know, I, I was lucky. When I joined policing um, in 1987, you know, the clock was ticking. Mm. And the last nine years of my policing career, I wasn't in a an operational environment. So I was lucky I was seconded to the VRU and I managed to stay there and why did I stay there because I totally believed in the work mm. I felt I achieved more in my last nine years in policing than I achieved throughout the rest of my policing career when it comes to helping people 
Um, and I felt I was ready to leave because I think if I went back into into mainstream policing, I wouldn't have the opportunity to 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 keep that helping to keep helping our communities. So I was ready for retirement, um, and I saw opportunities. Uh, I you know the skill set that I developed across my thirty years, but primarily you know predominantly in the last eight or nine years in my police service really readied me for, for the next. And I was I was lucky. I was 49 when I retired. I felt really fortunate to retire so young. So, you know, I'm now six, seven years into retirement and life could be better for me just now. Well, can I say that the conversation this evening for me has been in truly enlightening, probably one of the most important conversations I've had throughout the, t- the three series of, of talking all things policing because it very much has challenged some of my thoughts and feelings around all of this you know i will no longer call knife crime knife crime you know that's one of the biggest takeaways and i you know used to be a massive advocate of seeing huge zombie knives shown on social media to demonstrate what our police are dealing with i think the public know what our police are dealing with and i don't think we need people to be reminded of the weapons that are out there which can do us harm um and i and i truly I say buy into, I am buying, I, I truly do believe what you're saying in terms of sort of how that can trigger a response from young people. And um, I would implore anybody listening to this that's currently running a borough command or uh, is wanting to understand and how they can potentially overcome some of these issues to, to reach out to Graham because I think his insights have been, um, I don't know, nothing short of groundbreaking. So Graham, thank you ever so much for your time this evening coming on the podcast. It really has been a pleasure having you thank you ever so much for your your service uh, over nearly 30 years of, of policing and um we can do nothing but wish you the best of luck with all your endeavors in your post-policing career yeah and, and Ollie, again thank you and, and my, my ask of you is to communicate this stuff to people mm-hmm. around you right because you know we need to get what works the evidence out there and your job my, my job is to make I'm not going to force it upon you. You don't want if you don't want to listen to me. You don't have to listen to me. But you know, what, what I'm hearing from you tonight is somebody who's really curious. And thank you for opening the door um, for change and opportunity. So thank you. No pleasure. Thank you very much. And we'll speak soon. Take care, buddy. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.